You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. We're glad you're here. I want to invite you to grab your Bible, turn to the book of Jonah, and get ready to study God's word in a series we're calling A Chasing God and a Chastened Prophet. to welcome me like that. It's great to see you. Rolling Meadows, I'm so happy that we are together today. For the rest of you who are at all our campuses, so great to have you join us. Everybody is going to need a Bible, and uh, you need to open it to Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4, which is an unexpected chapter in the book of Jonah. We finished our series in Jonah today in one of the most um, surprising endings to any book in the Bible. I don't know if you know this, the whole book ends on a question, which is not usually the way you end books. Usually it's, you know, they lived happily ever after. It's not, they lived happily ever after. But here you have a question at the end of the book, which means, of course, that the book is supposed to leave you with a stick in the conscience. And uh, I intend to leave you with a little stick in the conscience today. Um, most of us love movies that in, involve plot twists. I don't know if you, if you sit down and you watch, you know, historic ones, the biggest ones that I know are like Sixth Sense, or there's some piece of information that you find out at the end that the bad guy was actually the good guy, all the Pride and Prejudice, right? And then the good guy, which I've never seen, because I'm a guy. No, I have seen it. My wife forces me to. So um, the... But the good guy's the bad guy, or the bad guy's the good guy. And it gets to the point, we do so many of these twists that um, you get to the point where you're really focused early on in the movie trying to figure out, all right, is that guy actually good? I usually try to call it really early with my wife, you know? Here's my money. It's going on, you know, Victor. <laughs> he's, he's actually wicked. Why do you say that? Well, he looks like it, you know? You can usually tell how they cast people. If they're going to be really, really bad folks, it's the husband who did it. I know it's the husband who did it. And then when the twist comes, these days we kind of expect it. But, you know, in the, it, it, when you were little and you first saw your plot twist movie, you didn't expect it at all. And it just sort of caught you by surprise and your jaw dropped like. <gasps> the book of Jonah is one of the greatest plot twists in all of ancient literature. Um, the book should end at chapter 3. The story of Jonah is, this is what we tell our kids, right? The little children, oh, we want to, I, we want to tell you about the story of Jonah. And here it is in your little kid's Bible, and we're going to tell you about it. And here's the story, the children's version. Uh, Jonah was this good man who lived in Jerusalem, and God told him to go to the Ninevites, and he didn't want to, so he went down to the port, and he got on a boat and went the opposite direction, but a storm came, and they threw him overboard, and a fish ate him, and then we do a lot with the fish there, you know, let's act it out, I'm going to flannel graph the fish, here he comes. He spits him up out on the land, and he goes to Nineveh because he's learned his lesson. He shows up in Nineveh. He preached to them, and all of them come to faith in Jesus, and Jonah went home happy. 
I mean, we don't include that last part, but that's what you expect, isn't it? And so that the story ultimately is don't run from God because he'll send a fish to eat you or something like that. What we do not expect is what happens. Man, this is, this is a, a twist. Jonah chapter 4. So I'm, we're going to learn two things from the twist. Uh, number one, that there's a danger in being religious. And number two, there's a primacy of people over plants. It's a danger in being religious, and there's a primacy of people over plants. So those will become clear as we go through here. So here's the first one, the danger in being religious. Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. But, hold on. <laughs> so, like I said, the way the story should have gone and Probably, you know, the way we expect it to go, if we've never read the book of Jonah before, is that he's learned his lesson, he's preached to the people, and the words here should be, and they lived happily ever after. That's not what you get. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. In Hebrew, this is, it was a great evil to him. What was a great evil? The turning of the people of Nineveh to the Lord. The repenting of the people of Nineveh and the relenting of God in regarding what it is that he was going to do. This is really important. This displeased. This word actually is evil. It was evil to Jonah. And it's important because in Jonah chapter 3 verse 10, the last verse in the previous chapter, here's what you get. When God saw what they did, so the people of Nineveh have received the message and now they're going to repent. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the, this word in Hebrew is evil, that he had said he would do to them and he didn't do it. So the people of Nineveh turned from their evil and God turns from the evil he had planned for them but it was evil to Jonah. <laughs> what? Everybody's turning from evil, except for Jonah. He was like, this is evil. It was exceedingly evil. And he was angry. So this word here, the word actually means he burned hot. It's a great description for anger, isn't it? It's what you feel in your soul. He's just like the like that little fiery guy in that, uh, that Pixar cartoon. Inside out, thank you, you're here for me. <laughs> so that's when he burned hot. Which is interesting because if you go back to the verse 9, so Jonah chapter 3 ends with verses 9 and 10. I just read you 10. If you go back to verse 9, this is what the people of Nineveh say. Who knows, the king says, God may turn and relent and turn from his burning hot in Hebrew. So that we may not perish. So what has happened here? Well, the Lord has cooled off because of the repenting he saw. And Jonah has heated up. Displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he, he was angry, 
And he prayed. He's only prayed twice in this entire book. The first time was actually when he got thrown overboard and he goes into the water and the fish comes along and eats him and he prays this prayer of thanks. Oh God, you're so good and kind and gracious. And to me, Jonah, because you know, you sent this fish, he's going to spit me up on the, on the land. It's going to be fantastic. Thank you so much for showing your kindness to me, Jonah. He prayed to the Lord this time and he said, oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you're gracious. Now look, if you'd never read this book before, and you were just sitting down and reading it in one sitting, one of the things that you would notice as you go through is that there is kind of an an assumption made that the reason that Jonah runs away is not because he's a bad guy. He's one of the prophets of Israel. Is it surprising that he runs away? Absolutely. But is it understandable? Well, probably. Like if you knew what they knew about Nineveh, you're like, yeah, they're, they're dangerous. I mean, the king used to flay people alive. He used to like stack pyramids of human skulls outside his palace so that when you went inside to deliver the message, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. When you go in there and he doesn't like it, he's reminding you of where your head might end up. Just imagine for a minute that I, that I, I call you or you get called to uh, Vanuatu, which is in the South Pacific, at the same time that John Patton did. John Patton is a great missionary who was called to this town, this little island called Vanuatu in the South Pacific. He was from Glasgow, Scotland, and the Lord called him to go there. The last people who went to Vanuatu, who were missionaries, got off the boat. This group had never heard the gospel before. They got off the boat. They took a few steps onto the sand, and they got clubbed to death, and they ate them. So if you're John Patton, you're saying, so yeah, I'm going to go to this place. Um, so what happened to the last missionaries that went there? I'm not, surely I'm not the first. And they said, oh yeah, we sent some other missionaries. Oh, well, what happened to them? Mm, they got eaten. If you're John Patton in this moment, aren't you thinking to yourself, yeah, I'm probably, I, that's not something I'm into. If, if the Lord called you to a group of cannibals who were known for eating people who came to pray, share the gospel with them, and the Lord said, hey, go share the gospel with them, would you go like, yeah, totally, where's the next ticket? Give me the flight. Or would you be like, hmm, Tarshish sounds great, you know? I'm going to New Zealand. I'm going far away from, from any of this. Of course you wouldn't. So when we're reading the book, one of the things that you, under, you, you, you assume as we walk through it is the reason that Jonah did what he did was because he's afraid, which is understandable because they're wicked. They're Nazis. And you're going to go declare to them that they should stop being Nazis? Stop being violent? What's going to happen to you? Well, they're going to treat you like violent Nazis do. So the whole book, you're running through and you're thinking to yourself, oh yeah, he ran away. He's a good prophet, but now he's been spit up and he's finally obeyed the Lord. And then in this twist, we find out that actually the reason that he ran away wasn't because he was going to fail in Nineveh, you know, get eaten or they're not going to listen or anything. It's not because he was going to fail in Nineveh. He was worried he would succeed. 
I'm not going to Nineveh, Lord, because I know you might forgive them. How did he know that? Well, he says, I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from evil. Does that sound familiar to some of you who know your Bibles? Like in your mind, you should right now be thinking to yourself, huh, I've heard the Lord described that way somewhere else. And the answer is, yeah, you have. Actually, um, when God self-discloses his name for the, one of the first times in the Bible, right? He says, my name is Yahweh. He explains to the person that he's revealing his name to, in this case, Moses, what that name means. So the story behind that is basically this. The people of Israel are down in the valley and God is, uh, God is with Moses up on the mountain. He's going to receive the law. The people think that Moses is gone and that God has left them. And so they're like, you know what? We need a God to protect us in the midst of this desert. So let's make a golden calf for ourselves and that will be our God. And so they go, they make this golden calf and they worship it, bow down to it. The Lord says to Moses on the top of the mountain, hey, do you know what your, the people are doing down there? And he's like, no. Um, they have just, they're worshiping a golden calf. So I've brought them out of Egypt, saved them. They've come across here. I'm giving you the law as an act of my grace. And they have decided to treat this with such disdain. So here's what we're going to do, Moses. I need you just to move this way a little bit. And I am going to let them go. Let them have it, right? Just, Just move a little bit to your left. And Moses is like, whoa, 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 whoa. You don't want to do that, Lord. And so there's this weird conversation where the Lord, Moses seems to be talking the Lord off the cliff. He's like, no, Moses, move aside. I'm telling you, I'm going to get him. I'm going to get him. I'm going to get him. And finally, Moses is like, yeah, no, don't do that. And he's, the Lord's like, okay, I'm not going to do it, but I'm not going to. Somebody needs to be between me and the people because I'm going to totally lay out my anger on them. So Moses, you're on my in- intermediary. And so their experience of me is going to be through the shining of your face. But they're not going to see me because, listen, if we come face to face, me and them, I'm just going to let them have it. So Moses goes down. His face is shining. The people experience the Lord. They repent, of course. They're very sorry for all the things that happened. Moses is leading the people through the wilderness for a few weeks. And he finally is like, man, the Lord still seems like he's upset about this whole thing. So he says to the Lord, look, I'm I'm worried that at some point you're just going to lash out in anger. At these people, justly so. So can I have a guarantee that you won't do that? And so the Lord says, yeah, you can. Here's the thing. What I want to do is I want to actually pass by in front of you and I want to show you my glory. But you can't see me face to face because if you do, you're going to die right there on the spot. I'm that holy. So I'm going to hide you in a cleft of a rock, you know, put you in behind a rock and then I'm going to pass by and then you can see what comes after me. So he does this, Moses goes in the cleft of the rock and the the Lord passes by. And when the Lord passes by, he says this. The Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh. The Lord has a name. It's like I have a name, Jeff. The Lord has a name, Yahweh, Yahweh. And his name means God merciful and gracious, Slow to anger, 
abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So what does Moses learn about this God? He learns that what's core to his being is the forgiveness of wickedness. Steadfast love toward people like the Israelites who are down ruining everything with a golden calf. This whole episode is meant to show Moses and the people of Israel who come after him that God forgives the wicked. And so Jonah knows this. He's been brought up on this story. It's like the central story about who God is in the entire Bible. And so he's like, I made haste to flee to Tarshish because I knew that your gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. I knew you'd do this. You did it with Israel. But you can't do it with Nineveh. There are some people who should get forgiveness and grace, and there are some who should not. I knew you'd do this. So, Lord, oh, Yahweh, just kill me. It's better for me to die than to live. Now, some of you know your Bibles. You're thinking to yourself, that sounds familiar too. There was another, wait a minute, there was another prophet who said those, those words. Who was that? All right, yeah. His name was Elijah. Here's Elijah's story. Elijah is fighting back against uh, an, a, a belief in a different God than Yahweh. So the people of Israel have turned their hearts away to a God called Baal. Baal was worshipped by the, the, basically the first lady of the land. Her name was Jezebel, and her husband Ahab had kind of followed along with her. So the king and the queen were actually leading the people to worship Baal instead of Yahweh. So, you know, Elijah comes and he confronts them repeatedly and saying, you can't do this, you can't do this, the Lord's not going to be happy with this. And they're like, finally, shut up, we hate you, don't ever say anything again, we hope you die. So Elijah is done with it. And he says, look, let's have a competition because what this is really all about is that we don't have any rain in the land and everybody is starving. So let's put these gods to the test. You bring your 400 prophets of Baal and I will show up on Mount Carmel and we will have a contest. We will put an altar there and we will pray to our respective gods to see which one answers. And then everyone in Israel will know who the one true God is, okay? And they're like, sweet, 401, this is going to be easy. So they show up, and the 400 prophets go first, and they start dancing around the altar, whipping themselves, you know. Oh, look how serious we are, Baal, show up. But nothing. They do this for like half the day, nothing. 
And Elijah says, fine, you guys sit down, it's my turn. He prays to the Lord. He says, let's soak the altar just to make this a little bit harder. And so then he prays to the Lord, Yahweh, and says, will you please show up right here, right now? And the Lord shows up. And all the people who've watched this are like, oh, oh, so there is a God in Israel. And it's not Baal. Even Ahab the king is watching this and he's like, whoa, we have made a big mistake, me and my wife. So I'm going to go home and I'm going to tell her what we've done wrong. Because God brings rain and everything is turned out. And Elijah's like, I've been working my entire life for revival and it's here. He's so excited, he runs faster than everyone else back to the palace. He sits outside the front door waiting for Jezebel to admit that there is God in Israel. And then one of the servants comes down and says, hey, I've been listening to um, Jezebel talk to Ahab. Yeah, she's not happy with you, dude. <laughs> you know, and if, if mama not happy, nobody happy. <laughs> You know, so uh, she actually, uh, she said for me to tell you that she's going to cut your head off and uh, won't die until she sees you dead. So, and Elijah's like, why? Wait a minute. We've had this moment. Revival's on the stage. It's ready to go. My whole life's purpose is about to be fulfilled. And this dude's like, no, it's really not. You should run. And he does. He takes off running as fast as he can, goes out into the wilderness, and he sits underneath a broom tree. Totally let down by the Lord. Feeling like his whole life has been nothing. He himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. 1 Kings 19. And he came and he sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die. Saying, it's enough Yahweh. Kill me. I'm no better than my father's. This is the same story over and over again. My fathers were rejected. I'm rejected. There's no revival in Israel. So the question, why is Elijah sad? Answer, because revival didn't come. Why is Jonah sad? Please take my life from me. It's better for me to die than to live. Why is he sad? Because revival came. <laughs> what? Do you see? Listen, I'm spending a lot of time trying to show you how this guy is the opposite of everything. He's opposite of Moses. He's the opposite of Elijah. He's the opposite of the Lord who has cooled off in his anger. He's the opposite of everybody else who's turning from evil. He's gone the wrong direction. Just like he did with Tarshish. Now he's doing it again. He's going the wrong direction. So what's his deal? He does everything the opposite of what we expect him to do. So what gives? Here's the answer. It's one thing for God to forgive Israel but it's quite another for him to forgive Nineveh. It's one thing for God to save a righteous fleeing prophet in an ocean, 
but it is quite another for him to save wicked murderers who flay their enemies and leave their skulls out in front of the building. There are those who deserve forgiveness and there are those who do not. You know, one of the things that I, I feel like I really need you to know is that um, when you come to faith in Jesus, so when you respond to the message, here's the message. Uh, God made his world perfect. Human beings like you and me have ruined it because we're self-centered and we're focused in on ourselves and we have turned away from the living God and we have broken all of his laws and ruined his earth and that just God needs to visit punishment on those who've done wickedness. But instead of visiting the punishment on us, he visits on Christ Jesus, his own son, whose righteous life is then given to us by faith so that we stand before God, those who believe stand before God as righteous and will experience eternal life in a new heaven and new earth. My whole life's goal is for you to believe that message. The Bible says that you should repent and believe that message. Not just nod at it, but say, yes, that is true and I'm going to respond to it with my whole life. That's why I'm here. That's why I got in ministry. That's what I do when I preach. But people who receive that message, and according to our statistics, apparently like 89 or 90% of the United States population has somehow at some point nodded and said, yeah, that's good. People who receive that message can miss the message that they say they've received in one of two very dangerous ways. Listen, there are people who said, no, I, I believe that, but they don't really believe because of one, two, one of two fatal errors. One of the errors is for them to say, oh yeah, Jesus did that all, and now he needs me to say the special abracadabra words that I can repeat after the pastor. I'll walk forward at the meeting or sit at my alpha table, say the words, and then I'm good to go. The, the, the cave of heaven will open up, abracadabra, and I will be able to walk in, and it does not matter one bit whether or not my life is changed by the profession. We call that cheap grace. The belief that works mean nothing. That faith is all it is, and ultimately that faith is totally divorced from any kind of action that proves the reality of the faith. All I got to do is pray the prayer. And there's lots and lots of Christian in the United States in particular, who think that the cave is open because of the special words, but they will end up finding out, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these mighty things in your name? Depart from me, I never knew you. But they believe that they're Christian. This is a massive error. They're going to miss eternity because they believe that grace is cheap. But you can also miss it on the other side. The other belief is that grace is earned. 
that the way it works is if I do good things, God will give me good things. And if I do bad things, God will give me bad things. And that the way that the whole world is structured is for me to do lots of good things so that the Lord repays me for the good that I've done. Why am I a Christian today? Because I'm a good person. Why am I blessed? Because I followed the Lord. Why is my life not going well? Because I've disobeyed the Lord. But here's the thing. If that's the belief that you have, that you need to work your way into it, instead of having works be the thing that flows out from the gospel. If you believe that, do you know what will happen when you do good things and you get bad back? You'll claim that God broke the rules. you'll end up angry and bitter. And there's a couple different ways when people think that grace is earned, there's a couple different ways that they'll respond when the, the agreement isn't worked out. You know, the quid pro quo. When the agreement is not worked out by God, you've done the good things, he's not giving you the good things. Where somebody else did bad things and they got good things. When that's worked out, there's two different directions that they'll go at that point. Number one is the atheistic direction, which is, uh, there is no God. I'm so angry. There is no God. And I hate him. Because he, he didn't fulfill the promise that I believe he had, which was, oh, look, I did all the good stuff and he didn't, he didn't give it back. So I'm, I'm quitting. I'm out. I'm going this direction. I'm running away. Forget you, God. But there's another approach that basically says, I'm just as let down because the Lord has not given me what I wanted. I prayed for a baby, no baby. I prayed for a new job, no job. Prayed for a spouse, no son. I prayed for healing, didn't get it. I'm going to respond now to the fact that the Lord has not given me the good things when I did the good things by doubling down on the effort So that at least at the end of the day, I can say when I stand before God, this is your fault. You didn't obey the rules. Look at my track record. Grace is neither cheap, nor is it earned. Both miss the gospel. It's interesting, a lot of people actually have pointed out that there's a conceptual parallel between the story of Jonah and uh, the story of the rich, uh, sorry, the story of the um, prodigal sons. Notice what I did there. I added an S to it. Most of us think the story about the prodigal son, singular, is about this kid who goes to his dad and says, hey, give me all my money. I don't, I, I don't care. You... You should basically act as if you're dead. And you are dead to me, Dad. Just give me the money, because that's what I want. All my life, I just wanted the money. So you move aside. He takes the money. He shows up, and he goes and does things that young men do with money, until the money, of course, runs out. And then he finds himself, this little Jewish boy, he finds himself eating the slop the pigs leave over. The pigs are the lowest on the totem pole. They're the most disgusting animal to a Jew. You're ceremonially unclean if you touch them. He's even below them. And so he comes to his senses and he says, man, I, even the servants in my father's house are treated better than this. 
So I'm going to go home and I'm going to tell my father how sad I am and how horrible I, I've done here. And I'm just going to ask to be a servant. So he takes on the long trek. And while he's still a long way off, the father who's been scanning the horizon sees him, runs to him, bows down at his feet and says, you're home. And the son says, oh, I, gotta, I have this speech rehearsed. Lord, uh, father, I'm so sorry. And the father's like, no, 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 stop. Bring a robe and bring a ring. My son, who is gone, has returned. We're going to have a party. That's what God is like. See, that's, we preachers, we stop there and we're like, see, that's what the Lord is like. And he is. He is. So all the atheists who said to them, said, I don't like you, God. I'm going to living up my, my, my dream life of, you know, wasting all the grace that I've been given by God. And then they come to their senses, Lord willing, and they come back. And what they will find is a God who's been scanning the horizon. Saying, come home. But that's not where the story ends. <laughs> In fact, the whole story seems to be focused not on the first kid, but on the second kid. His older son. The father's older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, right? There's a party going on. And he called one of his servants and asked what, what these things meant. What's going on, dude? Like, who called the party? I didn't get an invitation. And he said to him, the servant said, look, your, your brother has come, and your father's killed the fattened calf. Remember your brother, the guy who took off and treated the rest of you like you didn't really matter to him? He's come back. He's killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was, it was evil to him. He was angry and he said, I'm not going in. I'm not going to be part of this whole thing. I'm going to stand out in front and I'm going to make a sign. No younger brothers, you know, boycott it. And his father came out and, and entreated. The father comes out and he pleads with him. But he'd answered his father, look, these many years, I have served you. This word actually is slaved for you. I have slaved for you, and I never disobeyed your command. I did all the things that you asked me to do, yet you never gave me even a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. I've been putting into the system and putting into the system, honoring you, and I don't get anything but this son, listen, this son of yours, look at that, he's not even my brother, this son of yours, he came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, for him, you kill the fattened calf for him? I'm not going inside because you broke the rules. How dare you break the rules? His father said to him, son, look, you're always with me. All that is mine is, is yours. But it was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this brother, your brother, was dead and he's alive. He, he was lost and, and is found.
Look, most of us struggle with older brotherness. Most of us who've gone to church for a long time get into a habit of treating grace as if it's earned. Many of us actually go through our lives in bitter anger because the Lord let us down at one point and we decided not to be the, go the atheist direction. We just decided to go, uh, you know, the older brother direction. We're outside the house, but near enough to it, you know, so that it looks like we're still on the team. But we're mad. So what do you do if you're that person? And I got to tell you, what's so crazy about these stories is that just as a younger brother was pursued by the father, the father comes out and entreats the, younger, the older brother to come in. Don't you see that the Lord your God is asking you repeatedly to say, listen, I know that you're frustrated. Uh, there's a whole series of things in the Bible called lament. They're all godly things for you to do, to lament to the Lord. This let me down. This was sad. This was that kind of thing. But you need at some point to lay to rest the bitterness of your life and recognize that I love you. I have always loved you. And everything I have belongs to you. And I would never give you a stone if you asked me for bread. So even though you don't see it in the present moment about how things have worked out for you in your life, and you compare yourself to the other person who's gotten all sorts of good things, you need to understand that you are the apple of my eye and I dearly love you and I want you to join the party. Stop staying out here in bitterness. Come and join the party. Jonah, look at what happened to Nineveh. Don't you see this is magnificent? Come and join. Come and join the party. Something so bitter about your life is turning out. Elijah, don't sit under the broom tree just sitting there complaining that revival didn't come in your time. Don't you see? I'm God. I'm working all things according to the counsel of my will. Join me. Rejoice at how I'm working it out in your life. Oh, you know. So a lot of us here in this room who probably should be having a business meeting with the Lord saying, I am not qualified to think through my life. You, God, are wiser. And oh, the joy that will come when you enter that party. I have eight minutes left to finish the next point. <laughs> it's okay. Don't you worry. We went through three verses. I'll do the next eight in a few minutes. <laughs> Jonah 4. So, yeah, one, uh, there's a danger in being religious. It's a danger in being religious. Makes you treat grace like it's earned. And there's a primacy of people over plants. Okay, so here's the, here's the rest of the story. The Lord said... Uh, do you do well to be angry? Remember, there's a question here. He will come back to the question in a minute. He's bracketing what he's about to do here with two questions that are identical, which means that what happens in the middle is really the point. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city, and he made a booth, right? He's a good builder. He built himself a booth, and he sat under it in the shade, Till he should see, do you love it? Till he should see what would become of the city. Ooh, here's hoping, you know. Maybe the Lord was telling jokes. He's still going to blast them. Now the Lord God, while Jonah's up there, he appointed, notice the language, he appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head. <laughs> I always want to say, because Jonah stinks at building right here, you know. 
Oh, that's a really bad booth there. <laughs> Let me take care of that for you. And he made a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. The plant exists for the solving of his discomfort. So Jonah was <laughs> exceedingly glad because he's got a plant over his head in comparison to the moment when, it, when Nineveh repented and he was exceedingly mad. He was glad because of the plant, but when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant and so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked again that he might die and said, it's better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, same question. Do you do well to be angry for the plant? Okay, so is this just God messing with him? <laughs> right? This is what I'd do. Be like, oh, I'm sick of you, dude. Send the worm. You know. <laughs> oh, let's, let's give him some hope first. Give him a plant. <laughs> Send the worm. <laughs> is that what he's doing? Well, no, no. Actually, he's bracketed it with these questions because this is what we call an object lesson. What, well, okay, well, what does the object lesson mean? Glad you asked. Yes, I do very well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, look, you're concerned. You pity the plant for which you didn't labor, nor did you make it grow. It came into being in a night and it perished in a night Look at how you feel about this plant that you had nothing to do with, that provided you comfort. Should not I be concerned and pity Nineveh? That great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know their right hand from their left and also much cattle, question mark, question mark, question mark, end of the book. There's a guy named Leslie Allen who paraphrased this whole section this way. He said, he's, a, he's an, an author, he said, let's analyze this anger of yours, Jonah. It represents your concern over your beloved plant. But what did it really mean to you? Your attachment to it couldn't be very deep for it was here one day and then gone the next. Your concern was dictated by self-interest, not by genuine love. You never had for it the devotion of the garden Gardener, if you feel as badly as you do, what would you expect a gardener to feel like who tended a plant and watched it grow only to see it wither and die? And this is how I feel about Nineveh. Only much more so. All these people, all those animals, I made them. I cherished them all these years. Nineveh has cost me no end of effort and they mean the world to me. Your pain... Jonah, your pain is nothing to mine when I contemplate their destruction. Or to put it more succinctly, Jonah should care more about people than he does his plan. He should care more about the eternal destiny of the lost than he does about his own convenience and comfort. Amen. 
Okay, so if you say amen there, I can't help but think that you and I are obligated now to say, right, we should care, we should care more about the plight of the lost than our convenience and comfort. Do you know if you go to North India today, there's a, a, a state there called the Uttar Pradesh. Sure, I'm messing up the pronunciation, but it's a state, it's a province, an area. 200 million people live there. 200 million people live there. That area is 0.01% Christian, which if you do the math, works out to be 20,000 Christians in an area of 200 million. Or basically, two-thirds of the United States population and the number of Christians can fit in half of Wrigley Field. There are 613 people groups in that area. 579 of them, out of 613, 579 of them have no Christians at all. None. When a Christian missionary comes into that area, immediately on their heels, the militant Hindus will send out a task force that will go into that region and will threaten death on anyone who believed the Christian missionaries. They're called reconversion groups. Does that bother you? Do you know every weekend in Chicago, it's like 50 people die by gunshots? Yeah. I mean, you and I, like, we, we see it on the news. It's become so normal to us, right? Well, it's not where I live. It's not in the suburbs, we say. Does that bother you, though? That there are little kids who are running down the street who might get shot in the head today. To bug us? I live in the suburbs here all the time. You know, living in the suburbs is a little bit weird. You can show every, you can prove to everyone how good you are because you can always present yourself out public, but we have garages so that you can drive in and close the door behind you. And what you do behind the, the scenes in that house is just between you and everyone else. So all your wickedness can be hidden and then you can put on your little face when you walk out to all the public places. How are you? Good. Everything's good. I'm so good. Where are you going? To therapy, right? So I was like... <laughs> But we're good at it. I mean, we're really good at it. You talk to a police officer around, though, one of the things you'll find out very quick is what's going on behind those doors is pretty scary. When you sit down and talk to some people, you realize that their hearts are far from the Lord and they're experiencing the destitution that comes from not having Jesus in their life. Does that bother you? Does it bother you that whenever we go out to a restaurant, the people who are sitting all around us are living lives of devastation under the wrath of God? I mean, they're eating well, but everything else that's going on inside is just destroying them. Does it bother you? There's a missionary uh, couple actually who uh, 
who were asked on one occasion these words. (laughs) They were being interviewed in front of a church. And the question was, do you like the work you're doing? You know, the expectation is you're on a panel. Hey, you must really like serving the Lord this way. The response of the missionary, the man gave, he said, do I like this work? No. My wife and I don't like dirt. We have reasonably refined sensibilities. We don't like crawling into huts through goat refuse. But is a man to do nothing for Christ he does not like? Liking or disliking has nothing to do with it. We have orders to go, so we go. Love constrains us. You know, proclaiming the gospel to people is inconvenient. It is uncomfortable. (laughs) There's little applause. You're not going to have your little, you know, golf clappers behind you saying, that was a great shot. Well done in sharing Christ with them. Nobody's going to do that. There's lots and lots of hard hearts. It's going to cost a lot of money. Does it bother us enough to do it anyways? Does love constrain us? I met a guy named Isaac Shaw on one occasion, and Isaac actually works in North India. And he, he, he goes into that. He's a principal of a Bible college, but he goes on these mission trips to go into North India. He rides his little motorcycle up there, and he preaches the gospel in different locations in those places. Before he goes, he lines up his family, and he says to each one of them, Son, I love you. I've always loved you, but I might die kiss him on the head. Daughter, I've loved you. I've always loved you. Kiss her on the head. Dear wife, you've meant everything to me, but I might die. This might be the last moment we see each other. Kiss him on the head. Gets on his motorcycle, goes up north, sits down in a meeting room, and oftentimes the militant Hindus with reconversion groups come and they sit in front of him with their weapons drawn. I've talked with this guy. I've shook his hand. You know, if you sit quietly enough with Isaac and you said to him, dude, why do you, why do, you do these things? You know what he's going to tell you? Love constrains us. I have a dear friend in Vancouver, British Columbia, who used to live in the suburbs, and he was uh, living the, the, the good life. He got a good position in uh, a church. He had all the youth ministry or the young adults ministry is blossoming. Everything was going fantastic for him, but he felt the call of God to go down in one of the least reached, hardest to reach places in all of North America, in addition to, to it being the most expensive place to live in North America, downtown Vancouver. Very few Christians, and so he uplifts his family. He moves down there. The only thing that they can afford is what's called a basement suite, which is a two-bedroom apartment that is part half of the downstairs of someone's house. He shoves his two kids into one of the rooms. He and his wife are in the other room. They're fighting all the time. They have no money at all. There's nobody down there who wants to believe the gospel. He's preaching it all the time. Finally gets a group. They have to stack chairs every Every week, I sat on boards with him and he would tell me stories of what was going on and the sacrifices that he was making. And a few times I was like, Norm, what are you doing? Well, love constrains us, Joe. The pastor who was in the church prior to me, he had retired 75 years old. He used to take me out occasionally to IHOP. Uh, And I used to say to him, dude, 
I think this might be a sin because IHOP is not. I mean, that's not good. Okay, no, you might love IHOP here, but in Abbotsford, British Columbia, no. No, it was really bad. So we go there. But when you go there, one of the things I noticed is he knew all, the, all of the cooks. He knew all of the servers. He knew all of the hostesses. He knew everybody. He would talk and talk. He couldn't even get to the table. We'd sit down at the table, and he'd be talking to everybody else. And we'd sit down, and I'd order my whatever. It would came. It was always cold in the middle. And I would work through it. And he would share with me some things about ministry. And we went three or four times together. And I finally asked him, like, on the fourth time, I said, Vern, we got to go somewhere else, dude. This is killing me. Like, there's all these restaurants around this area. Can we just go somewhere else? And he, said, he put, his, he put his, his, you know, knife and fork down, and he, he looked up, and he says, 75-year-old, you know, I've been in ministry for 40 years, eyes. And he said, Jeff, I don't know if you know this, but I don't come here because of the food. I, I come here because I made a dedication years ago that I would visit this restaurant and get to know every last person in this room so that when the time comes, they could come to faith in Christ. People are more important than plants. The destiny of a man in North India is more important than my safety. The eternal plight of a rich woman living in the Gold Coast or a poor kid growing up in West Inglewood is more important than my kids having a backyard. The most important question facing the people in the restaurant with me is not how they want their burger cooked. The love that constrained Jesus to cross so many boundaries to come to up. He who was rich became poor that we might become rich. That love that constrained him obligates those who've received it to ask the question, does love constrain us? Question mark, question mark, question mark. End of the sermon. Let me pray, Father. I'm thankful for my friends and I'm thankful for a book like Jonah that has all sorts of relevance for us. I fully acknowledge, Lord, that when I preach these words, they feel like they come back off that back wall and sting me probably more than anyone else in the room. I complain a lot about supposed sacrifices that I've made. I'm frustrated with you when you don't come through in the ways that I want you to because I think that I know the way the world ought to work. And I'm thankful, Lord, that you pursue older brothers just like you do younger brothers, that you, you pursued Jonah, you visited him on the hill even after he was being such a jerk and that you raise questions for him and people like us to reflect on, Lord, would you change our hearts? Would you cause us to be people, Father, who experience the grace of God in such a magnificent way that we know how wide and deep and long and high is the love of Christ, that it just infiltrates all of ourselves so that we actually turn it out on mission and we see the world around us not as a place for us to be super, super happy all the time and comfortable, but instead a place, Father, where your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Oh, God, help us go, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. For more information and how to get connected to one of our campuses, go to harvestbible.org. Tune in again next week for another edition of the Harvest Bible Chapel podcast.